0: The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi, folks. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast, all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out Anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out Anchor.fm.
1: Come with me.
0: listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I'm your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to explore uh, an avenue of research, which uh, I've been delving into for a long time, and one that I've gone down in depth, a trail I've gone down in depth in the study of the UFO field. And this is about what I would like to call secret saucer tech. Uh, and what this is may be a little different from what people tend to believe about these things. Many people out there would uh, tend to think that uh, much of these UFOs that we see in the sky are alien technology, correct? Well, that may be so. We may be seeing uh, foreign technologies of some sort being uh, utilized here in our skies. I can't say for sure, but what I can tell you for sure is uh, when you actually explore down this line of research to try to find the source of uh, where some of these potential uh, unidentified flying objects come from, you can't find anything tangible to latch onto with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Uh, So that being the case, uh, I started looking down other avenues of thought with this. And you always will invariably find some of these cases that are absolutely uh, unexplainable and, you know, will, will truly stump you when you look at them. And I think there, there is a multifaceted thing going on with this phenomenon, uh, which is the UFO phenomenon, and it's been going on for a very long time. So there's, there's multiple layers to this whole onion, so to say. Uh, so when I started peeling back the layers of the onion, I found that there is a very earthly explanation for some of these things, and the line of research you can find relating to this field goes back pretty far, and uh, when you trace it back pretty far, you find that there is actually a uh, very linear type of a timeline as to the development of some of these technologies by man in secret and much of this relates back into the works of uh, some of the physicists from the late 1800s like Oliver Heaviside and uh, when you look at some of these gentlemen uh, James Clerk Maxwell Oliver Heaviside and many of these geniuses of electricity and tesla nikola tesla can't forget him he was very important in some of these different discoveries and what you find is actually much deeper than just uh, say ufo type technology fields you find a whole separate physics that we haven't been taught and and that's the, the bottom line with all of this these things operate on principles that we don't understand because we've been taught the wrong things. And we'll explore a little bit of these avenues of thought as we go through the the program here tonight. Uh, But uh, what we'll primarily be be looking at tonight is actually um, a paper released by the Townsend Brown Foundation. And uh, I believe this paper was classified at one point, but it is unclassified now. And where it has actually gone since then, well, nobody knows because the whole thing went deep black with the foundation of NASA in 1958. And we're talking, of course, about what I would like to call electrogravitic technologies. And there's a very clear line of study uh, leading up into this field. And we're going to look tonight at a proposal given by Mr. T. Townsend Brown. And this was called Project Winterhaven. And we're going to actually read through the proposal and hear some of the stunning things that uh, Mr. Brown was able to demonstrate with uh, different facets of electrical studies. He, he studied electricity, he was a, another one of these geniuses in the field of electricity. And this guy was actually uh, very well known within the military and military intelligence. Uh, because he was utilized by them as a, uh, a, an, an advisor, a scientific advisor. And he was actually uh, part of many different programs that the military ran. And uh, he was also involved in something later on in the 1970s called the Philadelphia Experiment. So uh, that being the case, um, you know, we could see... Uh, Was that the 1970s that the Philadelphia Experiment uh, came about, or was that when the information came out? That's what I'm trying to remember. But he was involved with the Philadelphia Experiment as well. Uh, So this guy had been around military and military intelligence for a long time. He knew how the system worked. He knew the ins and outs of how to get funding for research, and he knew the ins and outs of how the military brass worked upon different technological developments. Because he worked for them, folks. He was an asset of theirs. And he had to have some of these top secret clearances for some of these projects that he actually worked on for them. So, with that being said, we can know a little bit more about what we're about to cover here. Uh, Just understanding that, uh, you know, this whole thing with the foundation of NASA in 1958, all the research up until that point, was out in the public view, and then once NASA came on board, this stuff started to disappear from the public view. And there's different reasons for this, but uh, I would say the primary one is many of these military industrial complex contractors research this stuff in secret because I think the military wanted to get a firm handle on this whole idea because this is revolutionary technology that could potentially change the way we do things on a fundamental level so that's why they were trying to get a handle with this and that's why the whole thing got pushed into secret compartmentalized programs Uh, and this is the the Onset of that, this project Winter Haven proposal, which this was written in 1953. So keep that in mind when we go through some of the stunning developments covered in here. And this is directly from Dr. T. Townsend Brown. Okay, uh, this guy was one of the premier electrical uh, researchers and electrogravitic researchers ever since his discovery of something called the Bifield-Brown Effect in the 1920s, the early 1920s. And uh, this could potentially be a game-changer. Now, in the modern era, uh, places like NASA will say, well, the the Bifield-Brown Effect, that's been discredited. Uh, It's not really anything that affects gravity, per se. All it does is create ion wind. Right, And they'll say that uh, his, his research was flawed, but I can tell you folks, this guy was not flawed in how he did research and how he did his experiments. So NASA will say, their, their, their official line today, is that uh, there's nothing to the Bifield-Brown effect. All it does is demonstrate a type of ion wind, and it's not really enough of a motive force to be used in any useful kind of way. That's what they'll say. They'll say they've they've since repeated the experiments and they found uh, that the way that uh, Mr. Brown here, Dr. Brown, did his experiments was flawed, That had some flaws, and that uh, they've since demonstrated this and debunked the whole idea. Well, folks, I don't think that's true. I think that's just to throw people off the trail. And there's even been shows like that Mythbusters show that have taken a crack at it. But uh, I don't think that uh, they're they're being genuine here. I think it's, it's a disingenuous ploy uh, to try to shift people's focus away from this idea. Uh, so we could see as we read through the document here that Dr. Brown felt very strongly that uh, there was really something to this. And he actually demonstrated to the Navy, the Naval Department, portions of how this works. And they were Severely impressed with it, and the whole thing went deep black ever since. So let's go ahead and read in here. Project Winter Haven, a proposal for joint services research and development contract, the Townsend Brown Foundation, 416 Bowen Building, Washington, D.C. The Townsend Brown Foundation, a nonprofit corporation founded in 1938 in Ohio. Let's read on here in the document. Purposes, there's the purpose of the documentation here of the proposal purposes. Number one, to engage, in general, in philanthropic enterprise and in the furtherance of the humanities, science, art, and literature. Number two, to assist worthy charitable and relief organizations, educational and religious institutions. Number three, for the general advancement of science, art, and literature, the promotion of scientific research, the development of art, artistic crafts, sculpture, music, musical appreciation, Dramatics, The Ballet, for the study of dissemination of history, philosophy, and languages. Number four, The Construction and Maintenance. Of laboratory and or other buildings and equipment, the equipment of suitable personnel, the financing of scientific expeditions, technical investigations, and the like. Number five, the granting of awards, scholarships, and endowments for meritorious effort or achievement in science, art, and literature. Number six, the dissemination of knowledge in science, art, and literature. Number seven, the doing of such acts as may be incident thereto and in furtherance of the foregoing. So that being said, folks, that was actually the uh, purpose, the foundation statement for his nonprofit corporation, the Townsend Brown Foundation. Okay, and that's at in the beginning of this document, this Project Winter Haven proposal, just introducing who he is and uh, what he's about. And here we'll read down and we'll see. There it is, Brown. Thomas Townsend, he was a physicist, biophysicist, born in Zanesville, Ohio, March 18, 1905, The Hill School, Pottstown, PA, Doan Academy, Granville, Ohio, California Institute of Technology, Pasadena, California, Kenyon College, Gambier, Ohio, Denison University, Granville, Ohio, Special Electronics Research, Denison University, 1924-25, Private Research Laboratory in Zanesville, Ohio, from 1926-1930, to Naval Research Laboratory, Washington, D.C., 1930-1933. Staff physicist, the International Gravity Expedition to the West Indies, 1932. Physicist. Johnson-Smithsonian Deep Sea Expedition 1933, Borough of Ships, Navy Department, Officer-in-Charge of Acoustic and Magnetic Mine Sweeping, 1940-41, Officer-in-Charge Atlantic Fleet Radar Material School and Atlantic Fleet Gyro Compass School, Norfolk, Virginia, Materials and Process Engineer, Glenn L. Martin, Aircraft Company, Baltimore, Maryland, Radar Consultant, Lockheed Aircraft Company, Burbank, California, Consulting Physicist, Pearl Harbor new Navy Yard, Private Research Biophysics on Radiation and Plant Growth, Island of Kauai, Hawaii, the Townsend Brown Foundation, Pacific Expedition, 1948 to 1951. That's quite the biography on this guy, isn't it, folks? That's just all of his qualifications, the things he's done, the places he's worked. Uh, He was military through and through, okay? He was pro-military. He was all about uh, the idea of... uh, If this is truly a groundbreaking technology, he would definitely be on board with maybe keeping some of the research secret about this, if that is what the the military brass wanted. So I could see him getting on board with something like this and maybe taking this underground, this research, right? Let's read on. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Thomas Townsend Brown member of the American Physical Society, the American Institute of Physics since 1926, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, he was a fellow, American Geophysical Union of the National Academy of Science, National Research Council, Washington, D.C., American Society for of Naval Engineers, and the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. So, he was quite... Uh, Quite the, uh, the scientist, and in all of these different scientific institutions, involved heavily in many of them, and very highly accredited with these foundations and these different uh, associations. So uh, he was well-respected in the scientific community as well. So I doubt very highly that uh, his research was flawed, as NASA will claim today. <laughs> I doubt it very highly. This guy was very well-known, and especially to the military. Right, he was trusted with many of their uh, big projects, and he was, you know, he served in a capacity with the the U.S. Navy uh, for some time. Let's also read on here because now it gives a list of some of his patents that were granted. And uh, I won't read you the patent numbers, but I'll I'll give you just the names of a couple of the patents here, not to chew up too much time with this kind of thing, just to kind of give you an indication of who this guy was and uh, what kind of qualifications he had and the things that he brought to the table here with this. Just to make it understood, this guy needed to be taken seriously, and I doubt very highly that all of this was just nonsense, and they just said, oh... Well, we found out he was completely wrong about everything, so we just pushed that stuff to the back burner because it wasn't important. And that's the whole thing, folks, this whole electrogravitics research phenomenon. It was widely publicly known in the 1950s, but it disappeared. It disappeared in the time frame of the late 1950s and into the early 1960s. There was very little that came out in that time frame, and then it completely disappeared out of the research community in the 1960s and was gone. Nowhere to be seen anymore. The focus was switched once again back to rockets, right? And a lot of this was because of the the foundation and the onset of NASA, in my view. But anyway, here's a couple of his patents. One, a method and apparatus for producing force or motion, an electrostatic motor, a vibration damper assigned to Lockheed Aircraft Corporation, electric precipitation method, a buoyant cable assigned to the U.S. Navy. And those were several of his patents, and uh, you could see some of them were for private industry, some of them were for with his own uh, stamp of approval on them, and some of them were for the military. So let's read on here. Next portion of this document just brings up the table of contents, and we're going to skip past the table of contents because, you know, I I think that would be pointless to read, first of all, and it's not going to really, you know, bring anything pertinent to the table, but let's read on. First, we'll go right into the purpose of Project Winter Haven, and here it is. Project Winter Haven purposes. For the last several years... Accumulating evidence along both theoretical and experimental lines has tended to confirm the suspicion that a fundamental interlocking relationship exists between the electrodynamic field and the gravitational field. It is the purpose of Project Winterhaven to compile and study this evidence and to perform certain critical or definitive experiments which will serve to confirm or deny the relationship. If the results confirm the evidence, it is the further purpose of Project Winterhaven to examine the physical nature of the basic electrogravitic couple and to foresee and develop possible long-range practical applications. The proposed experiments are to be limited at first to force measurements and wave propagation. They are to be expanded, depending upon results, to include applications in propulsion or motive power, communications, and remote control, with emphasis on military applications of recognized priority. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. Because that's the, the purpose outline of Project Winterhaven. And we're going to explore a couple of interesting things within that opening statement here. Um, one of which is uh, the, there's what uh, Dr. Brown here described as strong evidence of an electrographitic couple uh, between these different ideas, the electrodynamic field and the gravitational field. And uh, I could tell you from my own personal researches, uh, it would seem to me that uh, this is describing a model of physics, which is much different from what our modern accepted model of physics is. And I think Dr. Brown gets into that a little bit in this paper, Uh, but he doesn't go into specifics about it. He doesn't seem to uh, kind of butt up against the idea of relativity relativity theory as uh, expressed by Einstein um so you know he doesn't seem to outright say hey this doesn't explain how this works uh, but he you know just kind of uh, goes along with that because i think he understands the nature of how you get funded with this stuff is you don't necessarily come out and disagree with you know this this model here uh so that being the case it's still unexplainable by that model but there are better Models of physics that uh, would better describe this. So, uh, when you look back at the old ether theory of physics, as opposed to uh, the uh, relativistic theory or quantum theories that are, are you know, commonplace today, uh, being taught with these things, things begin to make a little more sense when you look at it through the the ether physics model, and are more easily explained by certain. Uh, extrapolations of that model. So that being said, um, I think that this demonstrates a technology and demonstrates a whole new field of physics that we haven't been privy to in the public, but uh, it's been largely acknowledged by many people within the Black Projects community at places like Lockheed Martin uh, and various other places that uh, they they do understand and uh, utilize a different type of physics than what's commonly accepted in the public view okay Ben Rich came out and said this Uh, there were others Boyd Bushman before he died uh, he made several different videos and um, did several different interviews where he talked about uh, understanding a different type of physics than what's presented in you know to the public and these people were high ranking officials at Lockheed Skunk Works and they acknowledged that they, they, they go by a different set of physics when they're designing some of these uh, technologies. So, uh, you know, that being said, that says a lot. So when you, you look at this stuff, understand the way that everything's been described to us, it's not accurate. And many people within these secret research strains or strands here, these different research communities, these black budget projects, communities, special access programs, as they're called, they understand that there's a different dynamic at work here, and that's I think what we're looking at uh, with this project, Winter Haven thing. They couldn't, they can't explain it through the conventional models that they give us, so they've kind of put it, uh, you know, in the auspices of the special access programs for further research and to keep people off of the trail of how to do this and you know they will always cite national security reasons and things like that for that but uh, i think it goes much deeper than that but anyway i don't want to ramble on too long about that i'm sure i'll be talking a little bit more in detail about things as we go on but let's read on here organization organization It is proposed that the organization of Project Winterhaven be formed by four commercial corporations engaged in applied research and four academic institutions engaged in pure research. In a program of this unusual scope and intrinsic importance, it is considered to be necessary from the start to establish a careful balance between pure and applied research and the mental qualities and attitudes found in each. It is further suggested that the attention of one half of the organization be directed toward applications to propulsion and the other half toward applications to communication. Companies are to be selected whose current interests lie in these specific fields, and whose personnel, combined facilities, and hardy support can be can make the most effective contribution. It is proposed that a prime contractor be elected a company not necessarily a participant in the actual research effort, which is experienced in the administration of government contracts and which will be recognized and approved by the Department of Defense in a proprietary award. Funds obtainable under the prime contract are then to be distributed to the eight cooperating organizations under appropriate subcontracts. And then he has a proposed organization chart here on the next page suggesting different places and divisions where Uh, he would recommend that uh, monies be funneled through and contracts be, uh, you know, applied as to who should do which assets or facets of of the different research here. So that being said, like I said, this gentleman was very familiar with how things worked. That's why he put together this proposal. Uh, He was looking for the government to fund this. He was looking for the military to fund this because this was... Primarily something that the Department of Defense at that point would be very much interested in and should be very much interested in. Uh, So he recommended, you know, even right down to who should be involved in the research, what kind of funding it should get, how it should be organized. And he gave them an organization chart here. Uh, So let's read on. Historical background. The story of the falling apple which led to Sir Isaac Newton's Law of Gravitation, is familiar to nearly everyone. It is the usual starting point in any resume about gravitation. Newton's Law was the first mathematical expression of a strange and mysterious force, a force which has continued to remain a mystery for over 200 years. During this period, few scientists have emerged to offer a solution. So great, as a matter of fact, has been the enigma... In the dusty, unpublished notes of Sir Oliver Heaviside, written in the latter part of the 19th century, a remarkably adequate theory of gravitation was proposed. It was the first theory, so far, as is known to link the electrodynamic field to the gravitational field. And I'm going to pause there for a minute, folks. Listen to that statement very carefully. You need to go back and look at Oliver Heaviside's work. Okay, he came up with a theory of gravity that's different than what we're taught today okay this one made more sense and aligned with what dr brown was seeing in his own research and aligned with the works of tesla and many of these others that were in the field of physics during that time and who were heavily researching electricity and were looking at uh, what could be called uh, field research right Uh, The the whole gravitational field idea, or the electrostatic and electrodynamic energies. All of these different ideas uh, were being looked at by many of these scientists of that time, and there were some brilliant physicists involved with these things, and they were looking at it through a different lens than what our modern science does today. And here's where the rubber meets the road. We're going to read the next paragraph here, where Dr. Brown explains a little bit, about, um, you know, where there's a divergence here in thought because he took the time here to uh, to tell uh, whoever reads this document, this proposal, that uh, Oliver Heaviside, he wrote an adequate theory of gravitation. Uh, that was probably the most adequate theory of gravitation up until that point, up until this point of the writing of this paper, which was in 1953. All right. So let's read on and see what Dr. Brown has to say next. In 1905, Einstein published The Special Theory of Relativity and this was soon followed by the General Theory describing gravitation in quite different terms but again, implying a similarity and possible relationship with the electrodynamic field. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. (coughs) So now, Brown is saying... Einstein presented these theories of relativity the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity and uh, you know much of science latched on to that and he says it's, it's very different in the terms of uh, what it's describing here uh, but it implies similar relationships between gravity and electrodynamics or the electrodynamic field right? so he's saying although he's describing things differently and giving us a different way to look at it Still, there is this intrinsic property that's demonstrable, that uh, this this electrodynamic field and gravitational field are probably related somehow, and that could be borne out uh, through either way of looking at these things. But uh, that's where the distinction ends, though, folks. Uh, And for those of you that don't know, Einstein, even though he's credited with this stuff and he's you know, really represented at, as, you know, the genius motif and the, the whole genius archetype and, and this and that. Uh, much of the work, uh, that Einstein laid out, he lifted it from a guy named Poincaré. Okay. Henri Poincaré. Look it up. Uh, so Einstein, uh, these were not his original ideas. He stole them from somebody else and put them out there. And he was credited with this. So, uh, there's a reason for this, and this this gets heavily involved with social engineering, uh, to a large degree. And many of these ideas have been socially engineered into what we would consider establishment science now. Okay, uh, Einstein's theories, the the Re- relativity theory, the general theory of relativity, and the special theory of relativity, uh, they're all intrinsically tied to our scientific method nowadays. Uh, And this is what, uh, you know, the physicists of today hold up as their standard model, right? This and then they also hold up a standard model of what they call quantum theory, all right? And these two do not really interact so much, so they're still looking for that grand unified theory. Anyway, let's read on and see what else Dr. Brown has to say here. Back to the paper. Subsequently... In the unified field theories, Einstein has attempted to work out the mathematical basis for such a correlation, but so far has been unable to offer any specific experiment or observation, as in the case of relativity, by which such a suspected relationship can be proved. Compelled by a deep interest in the subject, Townsend Brown, as an 18-year-old student at the California Institute of Technology and later at Denison University, performed crude but apparently significant experiments with electric capacitors using plates and dielectrics of various mass. The impetus for such an investigation was provided by the academic controversy which relativity aroused in the early 20s. And that's the 1920s, folks. Brown developed the thesis that, due to the similar or equivalent nature of the electric and gravitational fields, a reciprocal influence could be expected which, if constrained, would give rise to physical forces detectable under certain circumstances. These early studies and the experimental results were called to the attention of Dr. Paul Alfred Byfield, a colleague of Albert Einstein in Germany then professor of astronomy at Denison University and director of Swayze Observatory. Dr. Byfield continued his interest and active support of the experiments for many years and prior to his untimely death in 1936, subscribed by affidavit that the observed effects, in his opinion, did represent, quote, an influence of the electrostatic field upon the gravitational field, end quote. This strange new effect first indicated by the results of these experiments with electric capacitors has since been named the Bifield-Brown effect, but due to the incompleted experiments and inconclusive results, publication has been withheld. In recent years, As additional data of a confirming nature became available, the research has been associated with government research projects of a highly classified status, and publication has been precluded. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So prior to the proposal of Project Winter Haven, Dr. Brown's research has been being um, done, was being done under the auspices of of government research projects, classified ones, highly classified ones. Uh, So there's a stark admission in this paper right here uh, that you won't really hear much of anywhere else. So this is prior to 1953. They're saying here what Dr. Brown's saying is uh, the U.S. military and U.S. government uh, was conducting secret research using the Byfield-Brown effect and the research of Doctor Brown and his experiments—they were doing research projects of a highly classified status prior to 1953, before this project proposal had, was being made here. Uh, so that being the case, like I said, this guy was an insider, right? He was—he was in—in he was in the club, so to say. All right, he was working with military. Contractors and military intelligence and the, the Department of the Military very closely with the research and development of many of these technologies. Okay, uh, so that being the case, you could see there's a clear line of research that could be traced back here prior to 1953 now. So, uh, and you could go as far back as the 1920s uh, when Dr. Brown was doing his research and you could go back further than that if you look at the works of Tesla and some of these other giants in the field of electricity Right? they understood there was an intrinsic leak, in, sorry, intrinsic link not a leak <laughs> intrinsic link between gravitation and the electrostatic field so that being the case this was something that was being considered by very serious research scientists very smart people <coughs> excuse me We're looking at this, okay, as far back as the late 1800s. But uh, Dr. Brown is the one that made the big discovery with the discovery of the Bifield-Brown effect. Now, like I said, your modern scientific establishment today will say that nothing ever came of the Bifield-Brown effect. All it does is demonstrate a type of ion wind, and it's not a force that's really strong enough or powerful enough to do anything with. That's a lot of hokum folks. Why would uh, the government be uh uh you know pouring money into research into this of a highly classified status if that's there was nothing to it. Going back as far as before 1953, it doesn't say how far back this goes, but I would I would suppose it probably goes back to uh, at least bare minimum the beginning of World War II if not sooner. Okay? Uh, because uh, brown was studying these things from the 1920s on and uh, he was you know used by the the military industrial complex in many capacities in that time frame so (coughs) that being the case i'm sure he had a lot of major contributions to things at that point but uh let's continue on because this this is this is a fascinating paper if you could get a hold of it it's the uh the, the Project Winterhaven Proposal, and uh, this was made available to the public from the Townsend Brown Foundation, so it's out there. You can find it on the internet. It's out there in the public domain. Uh, pick it up and read it. Interesting stuff here, because I'm not going to get through the whole paper here tonight, but uh, it really delineates that there's something to this type of technology, and we'll, we'll get there. We haven't even really scratched the surface yet, uh, but let's read on. So says here, <coughs> Townsend Brown continued to conduct studies of this basic effect with particular attention to increasing the ponderomotive forces revealed in massive dielectric materials, especially as it became apparent in those materials with high specific inductive capacity or dielectric constant. And dielectric constant, they, they put in parentheses here. They use the term K. Okay, or the the figure K, in the equations to represent the dielectric constant. So keep that in mind as we go on. So where you hear me mention K, uh, that's referring to the dielectric constant as we go on here. Various obstacles were met and were only partly overcome there remained the problem of supplying the required high potentials and developing suitable dielectric materials capable of withstanding such potentials. Due largely to the limitation of the dielectric constant, or K, representation, of materials available in those days, the forces obtained in the early stages of the research were never very large. Hence the effect remained for many years in the category of a quote-unquote scientific curiosity. It appeared impossible to increase the K to a value sufficient to produce consistently measurable or mechanically useful forces. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And that's what they will tell you today. Okay, same thing, that it, they can't you know, increase this, uh, this dielectric constant to a value sufficient enough to produce any kind of a useful force okay they'll say it just equates to ion wind and it's not a powerful enough force to really utilize in any way and that's not true as we'll see as we read on here based upon brown's work the guy who discovered this effect all right and i'll also suggest that there are others who picked up on this uh, probably within the, the auspices of the military industrial complex and their uh, special access programs, and were able to significantly enhance some of these findings and utilize them in ways that Dr. Brown could only imagine back then. But let's read on. (coughs) Within the last few years, however, due to the demands of radar and television instrumentation, new dielectric materials have been developed. The available values of K have progressively increased from 6 to 100, from 6,000 to 30,000 and beyond. Dielectrics with a K of 6,000 are now available commercially, increasing by a factor of 1,000 the magnitude of the ponderomotive forces theoretically obtainable. This should be sufficient, if the theory holds, to produce mechanical forces large enough to be accurately measured and also to be useful. In short, it now appears that materials are available at last which are necessary to conduct experiments which will be conclusive in proving or disproving the hypothesis that a gravitational field can be effectively controlled by manipulating the space-energy relationships of the ambient electrostatic field. Gonna pause there, folks. That's the crux of the matter here, okay? So... At this In this time frame, in 1953, when Dr. Brown was writing this, there were many new dielectric materials that were becoming available, right? The, the dielectric constant. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, these new materials were making it possible to use measurable forces, in a sense, to create real, useful things. All right? So... And that, that he's saying, that's if the hypothesis holds true. And uh, like I said, the, our modern science will tell you, well, the hypothesis didn't hold true. It's been tested thoroughly since then, and it's discovered that there's nothing to this. That's what they will tell you. But Dr. Brown tells another story as we move on here. And not just Dr. Brown, there have been many insiders within the field of, uh, you know, these special access programs, uh, contractors from places like Lockheed and other places who've come forward and explained some of this in further detail. Uh, so let, let's read on here. Research on the control of gravitation. In further confirmation of the existing hypothesis, experimental demonstrations actually completed in July 1950, together with subsequent confirmations with improved materials, tend to indicate that a new motive force useful as a prime mover has in reality been discovered. While the first experiments with new dielectric materials of higher k-value indicated the presence of a noteworthy force, the tests were mainly qualitative and imperfect because of other factors, and the ultimate potential in terms of thrust still remains highly theoretical. The behavior of the new motive force... Nevertheless, does appear to be in agreement with the hypothesis that there is an interaction between the electrical field and the gravitational field and that this interaction may be electrically controlled. Going to pause there, folks. That's the important factor here, that this interaction between the electrical field and the gravitational field it causes a situation where the gravitational field could be electrically controlled. See, this is an important idea. And, you know, if this holds true, it's that the, you know, the the ramifications of that are staggering, right? And that's why Brown went to the Navy with this proposal. Because he understood that, uh, you know, Technological developments like this uh, are of such magnitude that, uh, in his view, he would think that this is something that uh, could potentially have national security ramifications and that only the, the military and the trusted contractors thereof should be privy to this kind of research and understand exactly where it's going. So that's why he went to the Navy with this proposal. Uh, because he thought that was the best thing to do in the context of the era he was living in. Uh, So, you know, that being the case, that's where he went. But let's read on here. Discovery of what may turn out to be the long-sought electrogravitic couple should lead to the development of an entirely new form of prime mover, a form of electric motor utilizing electrical and gravitational fields in combination, rather than electric and magnetic fields, as in all other forms of motors in use at the present time. It is interesting to note that virtually all of the electric industry today is based on the electromagnetic interrelationship in one form or another, dating back to the historic research of Faraday and Maxwell. These original formulations have been changed but little during the growth and development of the electrical age. And I'm going to pause there, folks, and that even holds true today. Uh, much of what they've put forward has been changed very little. Okay? Okay. These guys were geniuses in the electrical field. They under, understood the workings of it very well, as well as could be possible. And uh, they understood it under the auspices of the model of physics now known as ether physics. And that's wherein there's a distinction to be made. Okay, This was pre-relativity, or, or before Einstein's theories really took hold and gave the world a different way to think about physics on par with a more atomistic viewpoint or atomistic philosophy, whereas, you know, it's it's in opposition to the ether theory. It's all about fundamental particles interacting in certain ways and uh, reifications of things that aren't truly possible. Um... So with that being said, I'll I'll get a little more into that later as we go on, but right now let's just read on uh, to keep this moving so you can understand what this whole Project Winter Haven proposal was all about and what potentially since then has come from this project. Let's read on. It is believed by the sponsors of Project Winterhaven that the technical development of the electrogravitic reaction would usher in a new age of speed and power and of revolutionary new methods of transportation and communication. Let's not forget communication, folks. Theoretical considerations would predict that, because of the privilege of sustained acceleration, top limits of speed may be raised far beyond those of jet propulsion or rocket drive, with possibilities eventually of approaching the speed of light in free space. The motor, which may be forthcoming, will be essentially soundless, vibrationless, and heatless. As a means of propulsion in flight, its potentialities already appear to have been demonstrated in model disc-shaped airfoils, a form to which it is ideally adapted. These model airfoils develop a linear thrust like a rocket and may be headed in any direction. The disks contain no moving parts and do not necessarily rotate while in flight. In atmospheric air, they emit a bluish-red electric coronal glow and a faint hissing sound. I'm going to pause there, folks. You ever heard any descriptions of UFOs? Have you ever seen one? Hmm, one of these classic saucer-shaped ones? That's exactly what's being described here. No moving parts bluish-red electrical coronal glow, faint hissing sound. Hmm? Sound familiar? Let's read on. Rocket-type electrogravitic reactor motors may prove to be highly efficient. Theoretically, internal resistance losses are almost negligible, and speeds can be enormous. The thrust is controllable by the voltage applied, and a reversal of electric polarity may even serve as a brake, or if maintained, reverse the direction of flight. Gonna pause there, folks. He's describing characteristics of what people describe as UFOs. Flying saucers in the sky, isn't he? This is 1953, alright? And this is all based upon earlier research he's done. Okay, and this is prior to his demonstrating this to the Naval Department at Pearl Harbor in I believe it was 1955 when he finally came forward to the Navy and was able to demonstrate the properties and the capabilities of some of these disc foils uh, that he designed here for Project Winter Haven to which they were astounded. Let's read on. A tentative theory of the electrogravitic motor has been fairly well worked out, and seems to be substantiated in all tests to date. However, there are certain variable factors which are not completely understood. For example, there are tidal effects, apparently caused by the sun and moon, which influence to a small extent the power developed. There are anomalous sidereal effects which seem to be related to the passage of the Earth through diffuse clouds of cosmic dust or electrified particles ejected from the sun. There is no assurance that large-scale experiments might not reveal additional unknowns, and it is felt that only by continued research and successively more advanced steps can the ultimate development be realized. Okay, going to pause there again, folks. Remember, this this uh, proposal was written in 1953. So he's already talking about how these things have been demonstrated. He's talking about the, the cap- capabilities of uh, this type of propulsion system uh, being able to achieve potential speeds uh, close to the speed of light. Um, and talking about... Uh, Reversing the electrical polarity as a braking system or even be able to reverse uh, the direction that the craft is flying. So think about these things and think about what's been described so far. Think about uh, what's commonly accepted uh, in the UFO field. Uh, Much of what people describe when they see one of these classic saucer UFOs is a technology demonstrated here by Dr. Brown. Okay. This is what he was putting together. This is what he had been working on since the 1920s. And in the 1950s, he had new materials to work with that could actually make this into something as a realizable motive force. That's what he's talking about here. Let's read on. Now it says here, results of research to date, and this is in 1953, folks. The Bifield-Brown effect was first observed in the movement of electrically charged massive pendulums. It was subsequently observed in the movement of electrical condensers of various mass which were similarly suspended and then charged. Mechanical forces, proportional to the mass of the charged elements, were revealed which tended to move the condensers bodily, causing them to behave as if they were falling in the gravitational sense. These early results were surprising for the reason that they failed to reveal a directional effect with respect to the gravitational field of Earth, but showed only a dependence upon the mass of the electrified bodies. In the years since the Bifield-Brown effect was first observed, other data have indicated this relative independence from the field of the Earth, and now a satisfactory explanation has gradually evolved, which removes the apparent paradox. The result has been more fortunate than unfortunate from an ultimate practical standpoint, for it has provided a theory for a gravitational drive virtually independent of the gravitational field of the Earth. Hence, it would follow that the acceleration and control of electrogravitic spacecraft would be relatively unaffected upon leaving the gravitational influence of the Earth. Several forms of electrostatically powered motors have been designed which have seemed to indicate various degrees of gravitational characteristics. However, even the best efforts have been crude and the results complicated and difficult to analyze. In general, two types of motors have been built, those with internal dielectric and those with external dielectric. The Townsend-Brown differential electrometer An automatic recording device, which has been operating satisfactorily for many years, is an example of the former type. The various small models of boat motors which have been constructed are also of this type. The disc airfoils are of the second type, and these show rather surprising laboratory performance, but are extremely complex theoretically. And I'm going to pause there, folks, because this is where the rubber meets the road with this now. All right. Let's take a look. So he's saying up until this point, this is 1953, uh, they were able to develop two types of motors that utilize these different types of uh, dielectric principles which may affect the gravitational field, right? One being an internal dielectric and one an external dielectric. And he was talking about uh, boat motors and this uh, differential electrometer that he built as being internal dielectric dielectric devices, right? And now he's talking about these disc airfoils as external dielectric devices, and this is the important facet here. Let's read on. Captive disc airfoils two feet in diameter operating at 50 kilovolts have been found to develop a speed of approximately 17 feet per second in full atmospheric pressure the speed appears to be at least proportional to the voltage applied and probably to some as yet unknown exponent of the voltage. And on the next page here, he has a picture, a close-up picture of one of these two-foot experimental disc airfoils. And on the following page after that, uh, he has a picture of one in motion, All right, which he electrified, and it went flying around the room. Uh, it was hooked actually on uh, a, uh, a pole, Right, was hooked on a pole, wired to the ceiling, uh, but it was, it would move, 17 feet per second at 50 kilovolts. Okay, so let's let's read on here. Based on rough extrapolations from performance charts of laboratory bottles. The estimated speed of larger non-captive flying discs operating at 5,000 kilovolts may be 1,150 miles per hour, even with atmospheric resistance. I'm going to pause there, folks. 1,150 miles per hour. You're talking... This is over one and a half times the speed of sound. Okay, this is like Mach 1.5. At 5,000 kilovolts, okay, a larger disc. It could potentially travel at those speeds in the atmosphere within atmospheric resistance. Let's read on. It seems not unreasonable to believe that, with voltage and equipment now available, speeds in excess of 1800 miles per hour may be reached by proportionally larger disks operating at the same voltage in the upper atmosphere. Going to pause there again 1800 miles an hour. That's roughly Mach 2.5. Or two and a half times the speed of sound. Okay? <laughs> that is huge. Think about that. And this is all without moving parts. Okay? This is a disc airfoil. A disc-shaped airfoil. Uh, electrified with voltages of 5,000 kilovolts. Alright? And you're talking, this. it says a proportionally larger disk, so I would guess probably something in the range of maybe 50-foot diameter, a 50-foot diameter disk electrified at 5,000 kilovolts, could potentially go Mach 2.5, under these, uh, you know, under his findings here with these experiments that had been done up to that point in 1953. Let's read on. The next portion here, it's going to step away from the propulsion aspect of it for a minute and go into electro-gravitational communication system and this one might be even more important folks and I'll tell you what's being described here before we get into it and it's the same thing it's the same principle that could be used to describe the uh, propulsion system for these airfoils. Scalar. This is scalar technology. That's the thing. It's It's been misdescribed to us. This is scalar technology. It has to do more with the, the operational aspects of how this whole ether physics system works, as opposed to what we would accept in our modern physics. Okay, it's, It could be more easily and better understood by looking at it through the lens of ether physics, and that's the whole bottom line with a lot of this. So these are scalar technologies essentially. So when you get into electrogravitational communication systems, scalar. This is scalar. Let's read on electrogravitic induction between systems of capacitors involving propagation and reception of gravitational waves. Project started at Pearl Harbor in 1950 theoretical background examined, and preliminary demonstrations witnessed by electronics officer and chief electronics engineer at Pearl Harbor Navy Yard. Receiver already constructed detects cosmic noise, which, according to supporting evidence, appears to emanate from that portion of the sky near the constellation Hercules, and it gives the actual coordinates in the sky here, folks, for that. And this, I'm going to pause for a second there, because this might be an important idea too, all right? When you think about this, this is acknowledging that uh, there is some type of, oh, I don't know, what you could call a ray of sorts, maybe, uh, that emanates from different points in the sky and strike the earth. Uh, and, And a lot of this is described back in more occult terms by some of the secret society groups going back to the ancient mystery schools. The ray, the idea of the ray. There's things like the golden ray or the violet ray. And uh, if you go into, uh, you know, the teachings of theosophy and stuff like that, they talk more about this. But this kind of offers a confirmation of such a principle or an idea, right, that uh, they were able to detect some of these different waves of sort or waveforms emanating from different points in the sky and it gives a particular one in the constellation Hercules. I'm not sure what the significance of this is or why this made it into this document but uh, rest assured there's some kind of an important uh, something or another related to this idea so that being the case let's read on though because it diverges away from that thought now a little bit but uh, I, I assure you there there is probably something more to the idea of this uh, uh, this cosmic noise which was detected from the constellation Hercules uh, by Dr. Brown's device in 1950. Let's, let's read on, though. Transmitter designed and now partly completed. Radiation is more penetrating than radio, has been observed to pass readily through steel shielding and more than 15 feet of concrete. In 1952, a short-range transmitting and receiving system was completed and demonstrated in Los Angeles. Transmission of an actual message was obtained between two rooms, a distance of approximately 35 feet. Transmission was easily obtained through what was believed to be adequate electromagnetic shielding, but this test must bear repeating under more rigorous control. And then it says to see the definitive experiments in group, Group B hereinafter proposed. So, what is he talking about here? He's saying that uh, they were able to send an electromagnetic transmission through a Faraday cage, <laughs> through electromagnetic shielding, using this device in 1952, this scalar device. See, this is what it, this is about. This is It's an important thing to keep in mind. Much of this stuff has been misdescribed to us and uh, has been described to us in terms that we we barely understand because of the model of physics we've been taught. But when you understand the ether model of physics a little better and how uh, the electromagnetic field or the the dielectric field actually operates, um, you have a a much firmer grasp of how these things work. Uh, So, you know, it's one of those things. It would be difficult to really relate um, in a, an hour, hour and a half podcast such as this. There's so many ideas bound up in it. And I just, I'm only scratching the surface with this. But uh, the idea of the physics behind it is an important one to understand. So if you want a better understanding of um, how ether physics in general works, I mean, you could go back and look at the works of like Oliver Heaviside and And some of these other physicists of the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, the works of Tesla, all of these guys. Definitive experiments. Group A, field relationships. Purpose. The tentative theory implies that the basic relationship between the electrodynamic field and the gravitational field is revealed during the process of charging or discharging electric capacitors. Proposal. A basic experiment is proposed in which two or more large high voltage capacitors are associated spatially with a standard geophysical gravimeter. Careful observations are made of the gravitational anomalies induced in the region which accompany the change in electrical state. Studies are proposed of the effects of varying total capacitance, rate of change of electric charge mass of dielectric materials, specific inductive capacity of such materials, and whether the special effects are vector or scalar. There's the word there, folks, scalar. These investigations shall be directed toward the derivation of a satisfactory mathematical equation, including all of the above factors. This work is to be augmented by basic studies on variations in earth charge, believed to be caused by natural electrogravitic induction, to be carried on by Stanford Research Institute in cooperation with the Division of Statistical Analysis of the Bureau of Standards. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Stanford. All right. Dr. Brown got Stanford involved in this type of research. All right. Talking about... A natural electrogravitic induction that's produced by the Earth. (coughs) Alright? This is an important idea. Because this is not something that can be practically explained by relativity theories. Okay? This is something that would only be feasible if you were looking at things through the lens of an ether physics model. Let's read on here. Next section says wave propagation, and bear with me for a little bit longer. We're almost done here, but there's some more important ideas to get to here. Wave propagation purpose. Preliminary experiments have indicated the existence of an inductive interaction between two independent shielded capacitors. In these experiments, a discharging capacitor induces a voltage in an adjacent capacitor, and the effect appears to penetrate electromagnetic shielding. Theoretically, this effect of one capacitor upon another appears to be of electrogravitic nature and constitutes evidence of a new type of wave propagation which may eventually be utilized in a completely new method of wireless communication. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This is describing scalar waves. Scalar. Remember that word. It's important. Um, And uh, most... Um, people out there within the, uh, the confines of the military-industrial complex, uh, the physics division thereof, the ones within the special access programs, they don't want you to think about scalar in any kind of meaningful way um, because this is an important aspect of something demonstrable here which indicates that relativity theory and all the standard models of physics that they hand us are nonsense, and that the ether model of physics is the more correct one, and the one that can be used to better understand how things operate. And if you better understand how things operate with this ether physics model, then it's, potential that, uh, it's potentially so that somebody out there, a smart individual who looks into these things, may be able to develop some type of uh, uh, device of sorts out there, uh, of their own accord, which may uh, generate what they would call free energy or may, uh, you know, produce some of these uh, electrogravitic effects. And they, they don't want somebody understanding these things because this type of technology will disrupt society majorly the power structure. If, uh, you know, an average plebe out there gets a handle on how this stuff works and decides to go ahead and do the experimentation and figure these things out and make a a usable device of that sort, well, that could upend the whole social order, can it? And they can't have that going on. So that's why they keep a lot of this stuff under their thumb. And uh, anything you would describe as scalar I think that's the beginning phase there and I, I, I sincerely hope there's someone much smarter than me out there who could pick up upon this idea and maybe research a little further into it and figure out some fundamental truths about uh, how this place that we live in really truly works and maybe be able to develop some type of technological uh, change here which may be beneficial to the masses in certain ways. So. You know, that's not kept under wraps by a uh, power structure that has their own nefarious agendas in in mind. So let's read on here from where we left off. Proposal. It is proposed that progressively larger scale and longer range transmissions be conducted. Beginning with untuned systems, laboratory tests are proposed to explore the basic electrogravitic relationships between simple systems of capacitors. Then, progressing to tuned systems and pulsed radar applications, large-scale out-of-door demonstrations are suggested. Such demonstrations shall be conducted Between suitably protected transmitting and receiving rooms, preferably underground, which are thoroughly shielded against electromagnetic or radio radiation. Appropriate studies of wave attenuation due to transmission through seawater and large masses of earth may then also be undertaken. This work is augmented by the basic studies on massive high-K dielectrics proposed for the University of Chicago. Calibration of receivers for natural cosmic noise or terrestrial variables is to be done at Stanford Research Institute, Menlo Park, California. (coughs) Okay, going to pause there, folks. So, he's talking about scalar wave communication technologies and all the things that uh, could possibly be done with those to a certain degree Uh, and he's talking about uh, you know the places that should undertake this research stanford being key there and stanford is very much involved in a lot of different aspects of these technological developments so that being the case you could understand his his premise here Uh, but let's read on here the next section talks about ponderomotive forces in solid dielectrics, and this is the important part, folks, when we're talking about secret saucer technology. Let's read on. Purpose. Investigations started in 1923 to ascertain reasons for the movement of charged capacitors point to the existence of a hitherto unrecognized ponderomotive force in all dielectrics under changing electric strain. This force appears to be a function of the specific inductive capacitance, or the K rating, and the density, or mass, <coughs> represented by M of the dielectric material as well as voltage factors. (laughs) Recent availability of the massive barium titanate high-K dielectrics give promise of developing these forces to the point where they may become of practical importance in specific propulsion applications. Barium, folks. Barium titanate. It was a high-K dielectric that... uh, Dr. Brown was looking at here, so that being the case, um, think about, think about it. Uh, what else do we see going on heavily uh, that invokes or, or uses barium? Well, chemtrail spraying, right? I wonder what the relationship is here. Hmm. Let's read on. <clears throat> Proposal. Beginning with a careful mathematical analysis of the Townsend Brown Differential Electrometer, an instrument developed at the University of Pennsylvania and at the Naval Research Laboratory, and which has been in almost con- continuous operation for over 20 years, studies are proposed of the forces developed in mica, glass, marble, phenolics, and dielectrics in general, and then, in particular, the newer barium titanate ceramic dielectrics going to pause there folks barium titanate ceramic dielectrics Um, so these were materials that had a lot of potential this is going back to 1953 folks this is when he's writing about this this was the 1950s since then (coughs) there have been other materials that have been discovered uh, that have the types of properties they need for these capacitors these electric capacitors and things and one of the ones that seems to crop up again and again is a little element or substance called bismuth and i think this is an important thing because uh, i think this is one of the keys as to one of the materials that they need in order to make a technology like this operate properly bismuth as a an insulator of sorts is what i think it's used for with the in conjunction with the dielectric to make the capacitor plates function Uh, in in the way that they need. I've seen this described uh, in many uh, UFO debris scenarios where they've they've retrieved crash wreckage and things like that and analyzed it. And I've also seen some scientific data where they were talking about it in relation to capacitor plates. Uh, So that being the case, this I think is an important element uh, along with this. And this uh, barium titanate ceramic dielectric, this whole ceramic idea, Um, is one of the important facets of this too, right? So we'll see uh, how they utilize some of these different things, these different materials uh, for these purposes here. So let's read on and see what else Dr. Brown has to say. (coughs) It is proposed that laboratory scale models of both rotary and linear motors be constructed and subjected to exhaustive performance tests. After suitable preliminary engineering development, it is suggested that a 500-pound motor be constructed to propel a model ship, and as a practical demonstration of one of the possibilities of the electrogravitic drive. This work is to be augmented by basic studies of the original Bifield-Brown experiments conducted under carefully shielded and controlled conditions in vacuum or under oil. It is proposed that these supporting studies be carried on as pure research projects at the University of Chicago. The space couple experiments, including a repetition of the classic trouton noble experiment but using high-K dielectrics, are to be performed at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia under Dr. C.T. Chase. And it says, for the participation of the Franklin Institute, see the appendix. So the Franklin Institute was an important uh, research firm involved with this whole uh, Project Winter Haven thing as well. Or at least that's what he's proposing here. Okay, because remember, this is the proposal he was giving to the military in 1953. Okay, this is what he was trying to put together. He was looking for funding. He wanted to do this massive research project and have them fund it. So he was putting this proposal together. Well, It's been said since then that uh, after he presented this material to the Naval Department and put on his demonstration in Pearl Harbor, well, after careful consideration, the Navy decided, nah, they don't want to pursue Project Winter Haven. (laughs) Nonsense, folks. Nonsense. Uh, It's it's almost demonstrable that uh, these technologies have been pursued to a higher degree than what's shown in the public. And I, I find it very telling that this whole thing, went deep black after the formation and foundation of NASA in 1958 and after that time frame it's almost impossible to find anything on electrogravitics post 1960. Uh, The latest thing I've been able to find was one document from 1962 and that's about it and that's about the latest document you could find on anything to do with electrogravitics. I mean, aside from the stuff put out by people speculating in the modern era uh, who've been talking about it more recently. But uh, there was a large gap in this whole idea, this whole field of studies uh, from, you know, the early 1960s onward. Uh, And it kind of disappeared from public view for a long time. But let's, let's read on here. Low-temperature experiments using the liquid helium cryostat are likewise proposed for the Franklin Institute. These studies, under the personal supervision of Dr. W.F.G. Swan, are to be so designed as to provide answers to certain questions relative to the fundamental nature of gravitation. They are to embrace such subjects as the anomalous mass of the electron in metals, and the behavior of supercooled massive dielectrics. A special library project housed at the Franklin Institute and supervised by Dr. Swan is to serve as a clearinghouse and repository for information on the subject of field theories and gravitation. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This is something I'm yet to do, but I I want to have a go at it, and uh, hopefully there's others out there who are going to want to have a go at it maybe we need to contact the franklin institute and see what it is that they have on field theory and gravitation there in their library because this is the repository and clearinghouse for all of this stuff and this is where i suspect much of it probably went uh, come the late 1950s when all of this stuff decided to go deep black maybe we could catch on to a research trail that way if we go to the franklin institute uh, to find this information, let's read on. Though, whenever indicated, consultations on mathematical considerations, field theories, and implications of relativity are to be held with the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton. Gonna pause there. All right, so uh, he's talking about how this, the implications of the field theories on relativity. How that's going to be handled. This will be done through the, the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton. So you see how it goes through these academic circles and they put their spin on it and give the official stamp of approval on these things. So if this didn't align with the relativity theory that they're pushing, they would find a way to uh, make it fit and rubber stamp the whole thing. And I suspect that's largely what's been done to kind of cover up the idea of a different Uh, theory of basic physics, the ether theory, right? They've decided to dismantle this theory in the modern era and hand us something that doesn't make sense, okay? Relativity theory, and then also, you know, quantum theory on top of that to try to unify these two theories together because things operate differently on the micro scale than the macro scale in these models given, And that doesn't hold up to be true for commonsensical reasons, right? And even looking back at older thought, the hermetic philosophies and things like that, as above, so below, as within, so without. Uh, Things that happen on the micro scale happen at the macro scale. Well, that doesn't line up with what they've handed us, folks. Folks. They've handed us relativity theory to explain the large things and quantum theory to explain the small things, and they've been working feverishly ever since to try to unify these into a grand theory of physics, and they have not been able to do so. But if you actually explore the avenues of the older model of ether physics, it makes sense. It's co- It makes more sense in a common sense perspective. It, things add up, and they work within this model. And they've, they've stepped away from this model to pursue this fantastical model of relativity and or quantum. And that's exactly what they've done. And uh, neither of these adequately explains what's happening with this Bifield-Brown effect. That's why it's been buried, okay? And poo-pooed and made to sound ridiculous. And uh, they say it's, it's ion wind. <laughs> it doesn't produce enough force to do anything useful. Nonsense. (laughs) Nonsense. I don't think Dr. Brown would have devoted his life to it if there was nothing to it. Okay, let's read on. So next, this talks about reactive forces in fluid dielectrics. In the purpose of this study, it says, studies of boundary forces where electrodes are in contact with fluid dielectrics reveal the existence of a complex of interacting forces, some of which are purely electrostatic, some electromagnetic, and some which could be electrogravitic. The tentative theory requires those, these electrogravitic forces to be present wherever a mass of dielectric material is charged and moving and to increase in almost direct proportion to the volume of the fluid which is charged and moved and i'm going to pause there folks if anybody out there's been studying the ufo field for any length of time you've certainly heard about uh you know some of these ferrofluids or these magnetic ferrofluids and things like the nazi bell project die glocke uh, that was allegedly uh, this type of an engine per se uh, where they use some type of uh, uh, mercury compound combined with a uh, some type of ferrofluid uh, that they rotate in a giant cylinder uh, using a magnetic field and this supposedly um is able to cause a type of levitation or, or something of the sort. Uh, that's what many of the theories that have come out and what some researchers have actually said that this thing was, that they, the Nazis were developing. And uh, who, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but uh, that's that's a separate field of study from what we're talking about here. But at the same token, there it is. It's the same principle involved. Fluid, supercharged fluid, moving and distorting the gravitational field, Right. So let's read on. Hence it is, in a sense, the juxtaposition of the elements of the static form of capacitor described in the group C experiments, and provides what may be described as an electrokinetic propulsive system with possible applications to high-speed aircraft and spacecraft. So the proposal here is this proposal. It is proposed that electrically charged circular airfoils be mathematically analyzed and improved. Starting with 2-foot disks at 50 kilovolts, the steps of the development should include 4-foot disks at 150 kilovolts and a final 10-foot disk at 500 kilovolts. Careful measurements are to be made of both static and dynamic thrust. Studies are also proposed wherein the disks are adapted for vertical lift or levitation as well as for horizontal thrust, and this feature may be incorporated in the design of the 10-foot demonstration model. It is proposed that studies likewise be made of various methods for obtaining the required high voltages, and these studies should include the development and evaluation of the capacitor voltage multiplier and the flame jet electrostatic generator to provide up to 15 million volts and I'm going to pause there folks 15 million volts flame jet electrostatic generator okay there are some people that have put this uh, this blueprint together for such a uh, a craft. Uh, one is Dr. Paul LaViolette, uh, who has a diagram and a blueprint of such a thing and thinks it's theoretically possible based upon his model of physics that he came up with and proposed, uh, which he calls subquantum kinetics, which I don't think is totally on par because it doesn't really align to this ether physics model. Uh, but he is definitely brilliant and he understands. Uh, some different ways in which these things could work. And that being the case, I don't know how correct he is. Uh, I'm not on the same level as him though, as far as you know the being able to uh, research out these things, these topics in the scientific way and know all the mathematical formulas and all that. But uh, he actually put together a diagram and a blueprint of this in his book about uh, anti-gravity craft. And uh, that, that one's worth reading, too. I forget the exact title of it. Uh, but it's it's a good book. But he does present things from the vantage point of what he calls sub-quantum kinetics. And this is his own kind of theory of physics, of how physics work. It's his attempt to uh, unify the quantum theory and the relativity theory, in a sense. Uh, so it doesn't align with things that I've, uh, you know found in my research that I believe are are true of this. I think things operate more on this older uh... type of physics model, the ether physics model uh... as viewed by those uh... pioneers of the electrical um, study back in the late eighteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds so i think things are more explainable using that model than they are with the models that were given now uh, these models they've given us in our modern science, the modern physics, they're overly complex. Okay? And nature is simplistic in how it works for the most part. Uh, it's it's not really complicated. It's, it's man who makes these contrivances about things and makes it complex for <laughs> unnecessary reasons. And I think a lot of that is to obfuscate what's really happening so few people understand it. So... Anyway, I don't want to harbor too much on that. Let's continue reading on here. We're almost done. This work is to be augmented by the pure research projects which are proposed for the University of Chicago to answer certain questions as to relative efficiency of propulsion of disks in air at reduced pressure or in vacuum and at various voltages. Immediate uses if experiments prove to be positive. Confirmation of the existence of the electrogravitic couple may provide basic facts and figures which could lay the groundwork for major advances in propulsion and communication. It would initiate changes in existing concepts of the theory of relativity and the physical nature of gravitation and certainly provide a basis for utilizing, in a practical way, hitherto unrecognized principles. It would start a major revolution in the science of physics with profound repercussions in astronomy, chemistry, and biology. In its timelessness and prov- provocative influence, it may become a shot heard around the world. So I'm going to pause there. Did you catch all that? So this is actually something that would shake up the world if this were to go public, Right? If this is true, this would present a revolution in science, in physics. It would disprove the relativity model. It would shake up the whole community. It would it would challenge the nature of what gravitation really is and how it's intrinsically linked to the dielectric field. And uh, you know, this this <laughs> This is something that uh, would change society on a fundamental level, should these technologies be pursued publicly. It would change things in a very, very real way. Let's read on. So we're almost done here. We're just going through this last section here, which talks about propulsion. Mankind has shown a persistent aptitude to devise means for traveling at ever-increasing rates of speed. At a certain stage in the evolution of each device for transportation, limits have been reached beyond which he could not go. The ox cart, the automobile, the airplane, and the rocket all have limits of speed which are basic and impossible to violate. The speed of the rocket, man's latest attempt, is limited by the velocity of the ejected gases, and this imposes upon the rocket a limitation of speed and range which man is reluctant to accept. In the coming age of space satellites and possible travel to the moon... Man will be casting envious eyes towards interplanetary travel, travel into the depths of space where he may not even live long enough to complete his journey. It is already becoming apparent that the rocket must be superseded and speeds even further increased. The recognition of this obvious fact, even to rocket engineers, serves to dampen much of their enthusiasm about the practicability Or sorry, practicability of travel by rocket spaceship. Fuel is consumed in fighting the gravitational field of the Earth. Fuel will be required in breaking the rate of fall if and when landings are attempted on other planets. It is quite apparent that a method of controlling gravitation is urgently needed and that it is already long overdue. Two types of electrogravitic motors are proposed in Project Winterhaven. Both types have a good chance of success. Gonna repeat that sentence. Both types have a good chance of success. A motor weighing 500 pounds for the propulsion of a model ship is suggested. Performance data derived from the tests of this model may be used in designing larger models, which in turn would presage electrogravitic motors for ocean liners weighing thousands of tons. Other possible applications in due time would include motive power for automobiles and railroads. The second type of electrogravitic reactor, now demonstrated in disk airfoils, may find its principal field of usefulness in the propulsion of spaceships in various forms. I'm going to repeat that. The second type of electrogravitic reactor, now demonstrated in disk airfoils, may find its principal field of usefulness in the propulsion of spaceships in various forms. For the moment, at least, the disk form appears to have the greatest promise, largely because there is reason to believe it can be self-levitating, and therefore made to possess the ability to move vertically as well as horizontally, and to hover motionless, in complete control of the Earth's gravitational field." what do you think about that folks what do you think about that Uh, we're gonna call it quits right there the next section here talks about the communications aspects of this as well Uh, but primarily I wanted to focus on the saucer idea with this and uh, let you understand there's been in development for a long time a secret strand of research based upon a physics model to which is not publicly acknowledged anymore. And they've made some strides in this field. And a lot of these ideas were derived from men like Dr. Townsend Brown here. Okay, he put forward this proposal, the Winter Haven proposal in 1953. He demonstrated this disk technology to the Naval Department at Pearl Harbor. And ever since then it went deep black he showed this could be done and this is just the documentation of that this is what we could find in the public domain that acknowledges that uh, this line of research had been going on even prior to 1953 as brown says in this paper here okay so they were looking at this he brown started researching it in the 1920s That's when the Bifield-Brown effect was discovered. And don't think that this was not something that was of interest, keen interest, uh, to people at the time. Especially those who were studying electricity, those studying physics. And the whole idea of Einstein coming on the scene, and kind of uh, discrediting the whole ether physics model, I find very questionable, especially since much of his work was lifted from Henri Poincaré. Okay? So you've got to understand, there was a level of social engineering going on at that time as well. Uh, so, you know, you, you need to understand, our view of science was shifted in that time frame away from this certain model of physics, which had a lot of promise and was actually very good at explaining the uh, the workings of the world and moving towards this relativistic model, whereas they talk about things like You know, space, being able to bend space, right? That gravity bends space. How do you bend something that's not there, okay? Space is a reification. It's a man-made reification. Space is the absence of something. How do you bend the absence of something? It can't be done. Uh, Think about that. This is not something that has uh, any intrinsic mass to it. How do you bend something without mass? It's the opposite of mass. You can't do it. And, and this is, the, you know, ways in which the, our physics model, it, it, it makes no sense. It's nonsensical on the face of it. It, it. It's the same thing. These are man-made reifications. Space is the absence of a thing, okay? Space is uh, the uh, counter to mass, so to say. Uh, so that being the case, how do you bend space-time, okay? Space and time, that's, that's what Einstein talks about in his, his relative relativity theory and stuff like that. And they're approximating gravity being able to bend space-time, okay? Well, space and time are both man-made reifications. They're not something that are objectively uh, able to be weighed, so to say, all right? We could measure time with a clock, but that's a man-made measurement, how do we know what time really is? Does the rate of time stay the same everywhere? And and how would you know if it does or it doesn't when we're just talking about motion? Okay, time is only demonstrable through motion. If there's no motion, there's no time. And same thing, if there's no mass, <laughs> then and it's space, it's, it's emptiness, it's nothing. How do you... It, it, like I said, this is a reification of things that uh, just are not... Um, it's not feasible in the model they give us, okay? You can't bend space and time, okay? <laughs> it's, it's not really a thing, an intrinsic thing. Now, are they talking about, say, the uh, dielectric field? Uh, possibly. It might be possible to manipulate the dielectric field. And in manipulating the dielectric field, you may be able to uh, influence the ether or the flow of the ether, if you look at it from the ether physics model, and if that's the case, then yes, some of these things may be uh, achievable, right? Some of these uh, things may be doable in a scientific way if you're looking at it from the right model. But they look at it from the relativity model, where they're talking about bending something that's not there. So uh, when you when when you're using the uh, the presupposition that. Uh, everything operates under this this model that they've given you, then all logic flies out the door with it. And you're not going to be able to achieve good results if you're using the wrong tools. And that's exactly what's being done. Uh, And that's why there's this separation or this divide between uh, what the public science is and what the uh, private science is of the military-industrial complex or the special access programs. That's why there's secret science, and that's why many of these technologies have been thoroughly developed in secret, uh, but they, they're kept secret because it would, it would disrupt the power structure in this world if this stuff were to get out to the public and people were able to understand how it operates and maybe build it themselves or do something with it themselves. Then it would take away this whole hierarchy in society. If everybody had a device in their home that could generate all the electricity they would ever need and, and more and, and do it not hooked to some type of a meter or a power grid, that would take away so much control from the hierarchical establishment, wouldn't it? That's what we're talking about here. I mean, a lot of these things are, are demonstrably, uh, you know, where this could be a paradigm shifting thing. If we think of it in that in those terms, so something like this could uh, really turn the power structure on its head. So that's why I think a lot of these things are, are heavily monitored and kept behind closed doors. It's the go along to get along principle. So I don't think that uh, you know this stuff should be taken lightly when you look at something and you find a research trail like project winter haven and know there's actual factual factual uh, linear science behind it man-made technologies that, that were developed and put together that could produce these effects uh, i think that's something you need to to really look at again and and not just you know throw out as disinformation or something, or, or the way they want you to think about it. It's, oh, that's nothing. That was all debunked, okay? that This guy wasted his whole life uh, pursuing this Byfield brown effect, and all it was was ion wind. Not really useful at all. <laughs> do you really think this guy who worked as a, a contractor and a consultant for the, the military at a very high level, do you really think he was on to nothing? Do you really think that all of this stuff just happened to coincidentally disappear right at the foundation of NASA and disappear from the public view altogether for many decades? The electrogravitic uh, research was very promising in the 1950s. It was all over the major magazines, the science magazines and stuff of the time, the newspapers. People were excited about it. People were excited about the concept or the, the, the prospect of it. And then it disappeared for decades, not to be seen again. So do you, do you think that, you know, everybody just dropped it all at once? Did, do you really think all the, the researchers, the, the different companies, the, the many companies that were involved in this research, as well as the the academic institutions that were involved, do you think they all just simultaneously said, meh, there's nothing to it, forget it and they dropped it, and then they moved on to rockets and stuff like that again? Do you really think so? Do you, do you, do you find it a little bit suspicious that rocket technology really hasn't changed much in the past 70 years either? It hasn't. <laughs> and so what are they doing with all this money that they get every day at NASA? What, what are they doing with this money that they get at all these research institutions, all these corporations, these government contractors, that uh, build these different aircraft and these different devices you know and, and they acknowledge their secret classified programs that go on they can't talk about it it's it's high tech stuff right they acknowledge that that there's that there's openly this thing going on there's special access programs that's not a conspiracy theory that's a fact folks there are special access programs going on out there that uh, research and develop these types of technologies. That's a fact. <laughs> it's undeniable. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's that's the whole crux of the story here. Uh, I'm, I've always been interested in the UFO field, and although I think there's many different avenues of thought you could look at in UFO research, there's many different things that cause this phenomenon. Right? It's not all the same thing. It's not all man-made tech causing all these UFO sightings or anything. But I also don't want to jump to the conclusion that it's extraterrestrials. Right? There's no evidence, no firm evidence to support that. So, you know, that being the case, when we could find an actual, provable, uh, linear designation of the development of this technology going back into the early 1900s and, and back into the late 1800s even... When you could see that line of succession of development of this technology and just what was laid out here in this Project Winterhaven proposal, you could see, like, there's there's man-made technologies that uh, duplicate some of these things that have been seen in the sky. And that's not to say that all of them are all man-made, everything up there is man-made. Some of it is actual phenomenon, right? It's an actual phenomena that you you just can't maybe describe what it is. It's, it's supernatural, it's extra-dimensional... Might be extraterrestrial, I don't know, I don't have the answers to that, but uh, the only thing I could really grasp a hold of is this type of research in order to prove anything out at all. Uh, So I could say without shadow of a doubt that there are man-made things in the sky that we uh, are not told about in the public that are probably heavily designed in this fashion. And this is probably the, the accurate lineage of how that technology arose. Uh, so, many of the technologies we actually see in the sky, and I'm not talking about like all the different lights and, and things like that that you see or the, the different uh, strange phenomena in the sky. Uh, I, I can't say that it's all man made, but uh, common sense would say that it, something that looks technological is most likely, in high probability, something that's man made. So, that being the case, we could see, we could trace this lineage. And determine that uh, a lot of what could be accounted for in some of the more sensational type accounts of UFO uh, sightings and things like that could be equated to man-made technologies. So that being the case, you know, I, it's, I'm not being dismissive and saying there's no aliens or anything like that. I don't know. And, you know, clearly there are things that we can't explain that have happened in the skies and that we can see and there are phenomena that happen uh outside of just in the sky the the whole uh uh, different phenomenon that goes on with uh, extraterrestrial contact or what they they equate to extraterrestrial contact um, that kind of thing those things go on uh but uh, that's not largely what we could actually grasp a hold of some firm facts and identify a trail on where this is Uh, so that being the case that's why i wanted to just lay this down uh, because there there are some secret technologies that have been developed uh, clearly through this lineage of this research. So, you know, when you see it, you could understand a lot of it's man-made. The more technical uh, device-looking things. The things that look like man-made devices are probably man-made devices. Let's use Occam's razor in that in that case. So even though it's a saucer shape or something like that, um, you know, it's a man-made craft in, in most, the most likely scenario. So we, we see that there's been this, this research that's gone on. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting topic, and I, I always enjoy looking at this. So that's why I wanted to put that out there. But uh, I think it could better be described through an alternative physics than what we're given. Uh, because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up if you apply the physics model we have. To these things, and they have put out a lot of uh, a lot of other things out there to describe these things in the auspices of the physics models that we accept, and I, I don't think they're all correct. Like I said, I don't have all the answers, but my intuition tells me that uh, the more correct way to view the our world is through the lens of the physics that were pursued by those in the the classical field of electricity, electrical study and uh, physics back in the late 1800s, the ether model. It makes more sense. It's simpler. Things can be more readily explained through it and modeled through it. And uh, I I think it just holds up better. And like I said, my intuition tells me that uh, that seems more of an accurate way to view the world rather than through relativity, or quantum theory. Uh, so that being the case, am I right? Maybe, maybe not, right? I don't know. I'm not a PhD. Uh, I'm, I'm not somebody that, uh, you know, really explores these ideas to that degree through mathematics and various ways that the academics would. Uh, but I, I just like to look and think in what's a realistic way to view this? What's a practical way? to view this and I think that model works better and especially to describe technologies like this and many people would argue well those technologies don't exist so what you're proposing also is nonsensical well I would say look at the works of Dr. Townsend Brown would you tell him that all of his work was nonsense was based on nonsense that it was worthless that he wasted his life when this guy was highly accredited within the academic community and within the auspices of the military-industrial complex, he was highly respected. His ideas were uh, uh, regarded and uh, taken and, and put forward in other ways. And it was even acknowledged in this, in this paper that they, they took his ideas and the, the research on the Byfield-Brown effect and were doing classified, highly classified research on it within the auspices of the military-industrial complex, even before he, he put together this Winter Haven proposal. So, uh, there's a clear designation here, historically, that there's a traceable record of these saucer craft technologies going back as far as the 1920s. And that's what I'm pointing out here. Man-made technologies. Okay, so... They've also, the CIA has also acknowledged that, uh, the whole UFO phenomenon is something they can utilize for disinformation purposes, and they've done so. So, uh, that being the case, it, it's hard to really, to really get a firm grasp of what this whole phenomena, phenomenon, phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon, what it all entails, because there's a lot to it, and it's, it's, you know, a, uh, a topic that I, I love to explore very deeply, and I, I've looked at up and down. Uh, but uh, the information I could put out for it is only that which I could actually go back and 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 prove. And, and here's documentation of this program, okay, and a, a clear lineage of where these ideas came from. If you go back, you explore Dr. Brown's writing. And go back prior to him, to the writings of Tesla, Heaviside, Maxwell. All of these guys. They were talking about different models of physics, how electricity works. Uh, Tesla is even said to have developed some type of uh, saucer technology in his own right. I don't know how accurate that is. He did design a levitation device of sorts, but I don't know if it works based upon these same principles or not. Uh, but he was a genius, and he understood, uh, you know, the workings of electricity better than anybody today. So, um, that being the case, maybe he did know something, and maybe he was able to develop some of these ideas. But he's the one that developed the electric motor. So, you know, that he laid a foundation. Let's put it that way. He laid a foundation that was built upon by others like Dr. T. Townsend Brown here. So... We could see this, this delineation of how this technology was brought forward, and it's a man-made technology. So next time you see a weird craft in the sky, uh, if it looks like it's a definitive machine or craft of sorts, use a little common logic and common sense to say, I know there's human beings in the world, and it's likely that a human being built this, rather than going to the other end of the spectrum and saying, it's aliens. Well we have no true evidence of that and it, it defies logic to think that. That would be like saying unicorns built this. Look <laughs> Look, there's a, a, a flying machine in the sky. Must be the unicorns, rather than saying the humans, right? I don't know. Anyway, <clears throat> that that's the whole bottom line here. I just wanted to cover Project Winterhaven and the secret saucer tech, the the program that was going on from back in the 1920s when this research was ongoing to up until the 1950s when they started actually developing real nuts and bolts things that could perform in this capacity. And then it went black, right? The late 1950s, 1958, it all went, disappeared from public view. Except for a few minor leaks here and there in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and then nothing. No talk of electrogravitic craft or anything like that in the public sector for decades afterwards. So, you know, it, it should tell you something. This was, this was pushed under for a reason. It was covered up for a reason. And there's a very real technology at work. And it's likely far in advance today of what we could realize or think. So who knows? Who knows what's been done with this Uh, I can't say I know what's being done with it today or what's been done with it since, Uh, but what I do know is you could trace this lineage back, and this is a real technology that was being developed and I think had actually uh, been operating by the late 1950s. So, you know, that being the case, who knows what's been done in secret Maybe one day we'll find out, and I sure hope so. Anyway, folks, I thank you for tuning in tonight. I hope this was an interesting show for all of you because I've always found this topic fascinating, and I think it's important to lay out the history of some of these things and point out that uh, perhaps what you think it is is not necessarily what you think it is, and there's a more earthly explanation for a lot of things. Uh, So that being the case, that's where I'm going to leave it right here. And have a good night, folks, and, you know, keep your eyes on the skies, because who knows what we'll see next. Have a good one.